Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 163, The Battle of Kursk. Last time, the Battle of Kharkov had been a smashing success, thanks to SS Corps Commander Hauser, von Manstein, the commander of Army Group South, and the freedom they were given to use the powerful SS divisions as mobile destructive forces rather than static formations. But all was not perfect on the Eastern Front or in Berlin. For one, Kharkov had to be retaken after it was lost. Next, Hitler's control was tightening at a time when the commanders on the ground should have been trusted more. And even though Belgorod, north of Kharkov, had been retaken, it too had been lost, as Soviet numbers and tenacity were starting to make themselves felt. And lastly, that freedom von Manstein and the SS had enjoyed was lost, as Hitler was determined to make a stand along this new front, which negated the very punching power and element of surprise that the SS were capable of. Still, Hitler was looking at this next phase, the best way to beat the enemy back during the summer of 1943. And as the OKH and the field commanders sent signals back and forth to each other, it seemed that the target would be around Kursk, about 350 miles or 563 kilometers south by southeast of Moscow, and just over 100 miles or 160 kilometers north by northeast of the newly reacquired Belgorod. But first, the losses suffered by the Wehrmacht and SS divisions had to be made good. Sepp Dietrich, the Lieb commander and a Hitler favorite, was told that he would be taking command of the 1st SS Panzer Corps, made up of the Liebstandarte and a new division currently being put together made up of the older members of the Hitler Youth. These young men would comprise the 12th SS Panzer Division, Hitler Jungen. However, the Liebstandarte would lose one Panzer Battalion to this new division. Hence, when the Battle of Kursk was underway, the Lieb would only have one Panzer Division. And though Dietrich was honored at this promotion, he would find himself sitting around a lot, as technically, the Liebstandarte was still under Hauser. And though the men of Lieb would miss Dietrich, the only commander they had ever known, they felt good about their new immediate superior, Theodore Wisch, who had been in the division since its conception and had worked his way up through the ranks. As for the dead Eek, killed when his plane was shot down, the Totenkopf would now be led by Hermann Priest, but again he was tried during their battles and found to be a calming, no-nonsense leader. Priest took the reins from Max Simon. As the Das Reich's leader had been seriously wounded in this latest fighting, the new commander there would be Walter Kruger, a former commander of the Polizei Division, who had also stood out during the fighting. While the Hitler Youth Division was being trained up, the SS divisions had their losses replaced by men of the Luftwaffe. Gehring, over the years, using his prestige, had grabbed up many men, but now they were needed as infantry, which should have been a warning to those German officers paying attention. The problem was, these men, brave as they were, knew little of infantry tactics, so were shown the ropes with what time remained 
before this latest offensive came off. Should that have been another warning? But even if these rumbles of disquiet were glossed over, what could not be ignored was that the Battle of Kursk would be fought with panzer strength not being fully recouped after Kharkov. As stated before, the Liebstandalte would have a single tank battalion. The Totenkopf tanks were now down to a third of their normal strength, while the Das Reich repurposed captured T-34 tanks to make up some of their losses. By the spring of 43, Hitler had his attention pushed towards the Kursk salient, centered around that town by von Manstein. However, the latter's idea was to hit the object from the north and south with Army Group South and Army Group Center just as soon as the roads were dry enough. Yes, they would be under strength in men and armor, but they would be moving out before the enemy was ready or had sent in reinforcements, certainly considering what had just happened at Kharkov. It was a risk, but Manstein and the SS divisions had already shown what surprise could achieve. Move out, hit the enemy hard, keep moving, no prisoners, focus your concentrated strength at the enemy's various points that had not been brought up to strength. And yet, Hitler put off giving the green light again and again. He told his generals that he wanted to beef up the numbers of Panther tanks and the elephant tank destroyers put out by Krupp. But with each delay, the enemy was bringing forward more men, strengthening their defenses, which defeated Manstein's vision. In fact, after enough time went by, Manstein no longer thought it was a good idea. To cut through enemy positions that have just arrived was one thing, but to slog your way through fortifications, minefields, artillery fire zones, and anti-tank strongpoints, that was an entirely different kettle of fish, one that Manstein had no appetite for. And he told Hitler so. Further, Field Marshal Walter Model and Guderian agreed with the Army Group South commander. But as the replacement men and tanks were pouring in at the front, Hitler was getting more excited by this idea of cutting off the tip of the salient and killing all those within it, just as they had during the early days of Barbarossa. And men like OKH Chief of Staff General Kurt Zeitzer and Army Group Center Commander von Plugge backed him. No surprise, they would be on the winning side. Operation Citadel the code name for this pincer movement, was launched on January 1st, 1943. But as April, May, and June had gone by, the Soviets, knowing the intentions of the enemy, had put those various anti-tank devices mentioned a moment ago into place, and many of them. The best way to think of it is like this. Picturing Kursk in the middle of a map, if you draw a line that ran west to east that started 78 miles or 125 kilometers to the west of Kursk and then many more miles further to its east, the Soviets had put up five continuous lines of fortifications on either side of that line around Kursk. Still, on July 5th, Modal's 9th Army would come at Kursk from the north, while Hoth's 4th Panzer Army pushed up from Belgorod. 
Again, the Soviets knew what was coming. So, besides their multiple defensive lines, Stalin and Zhukov had brought forward their strategic reserve. For they were not only going to stymie the German attack, they were going to launch their own once the enemies had fizzled out. Citadel had just under 750,000 men, all told, with some 2,400 tanks and assault guns, 7,500 artillery and mortars, and 1,800 aircraft. The majority of these would start from the south. In fact, Manstein would have three panzer corps, which included Hausers. Considering the Germans' need for this operation to succeed, those 1,800 aircraft would come from the 8th Flieger Corps, and they, for the first time, would be using their Stukas with its twin-engine-mounted 3.7mm cannons. These had proven effective against enemy tanks in the past. But of the many changes that had transpired on the Eastern Front since June 22, 1941, the German ground troops now had to be concerned with a threat from the air. During the nights, the Soviets would fly over in their Polykarpov PO-2s. They didn't carry many bombs, but were effective at night. When the sun was up, the Polykarpov was replaced by the Sturmovig ground attack plane. Again, it wasn't the best airplane ever built, but its armored under fuselage meant it could take hits from below and keep flying and keep firing. By the time of the Citadel, the Germans were happy to hit these things just enough to drive them away. The idea of blowing them out of the sky was a thing that belonged to the past. Trying to get sleep whenever they could, the German infantrymen were hardly ever left alone anymore. But as the jump-off date of Citadel approached, Mother Nature made an appearance. General Winter had been replaced by heat, humidity, and summer rains, which made the roads difficult at times. But generally, this was the optimum geography for tanks. Open steppes with only small villages before Kursk would be reached. During the night of July 4th, SS combat engineers crawled towards the Soviet line. They removed mines and other obstructions to allow their comrades' first dash to be done quickly. Early in the morning of July 5th, Germans north and south of Kursk set off. In the south, the formations on the move were thus. The 48th Panzer Corps was on the left. It included the Grossdeutschland Division and a brigade's worth of new Panthers, which left Hauser's 2nd SS Panzer Corps in the center with 3rd Panzer Corps on the right. To either side were infantry and artillery. It would be the Panzers leading the way. This moment had the potential to make or break Himmler's SS, as it was contributing 343 tanks and 195 self-propelled assault guns. The SS Panzer Corps surged ahead, smashing into the enemy's line, with Hauser's Corps, the Liebstandarte, on the left, the Dustlike in the center, and the Totenkopf on the right. When the first series of trenches near the village of Beresov were reached, the SS infantry took over, led by their flamethrowers. With each turn in a trench, flame was sent ahead of the SS men, alighting the enemy who were now running away. 
with no nasty surprises, hiding in the trenches, waiting for the Panzers, they retook the lead and moved out. The SS heavy Panzers were in the form of a wedge to cut through the enemy. Positioned like this, however, they were not acting as a rapier or a broadsword, more like a sledgehammer. The Tigers led the way, being relatively safe from the T-34s or any anti-tank guns, as long as they were hit in the front. Besides their relatively weak sides and rear, only a landmine could take them out, and some were lost early on to these. Still, by the end of the day, July 5th, the leader of Liebstandarte's Tiger Company had taken out four T-34s, 19 anti-tank guns, seven bunkers, and ten fixed flamethrowers. One of his subordinates took out eight tanks and seven anti-tank guns. It was a good day for German armor. But outdoing both of these men, a 20-year-old Unterscharfuhrer Franz Stauger had the day of all days, on July 8th. With the southern pincer still moving confidently north, by the second day Stauger's tank had broken down. As it was being repaired on the 8th, he heard that the Deutschland Regiment of the Das Reich Division was pinned down. Worse, some 50 or 60 Soviet tanks were closing in on their position. Undaunted, the 20-year-old yelled at the repair crews until his tank was fixed, and then he dashed off. Catching up to the T-34s before they could engage the trapped infantrymen, Stalger's Tiger danced around the enemy formation for two hours, engaging, pulling back, then charging forward again. By the end of those two hours, he had taken out 17 T-34s, the very tanks that used to haunt German formations. As the T-34s had been leading this relatively small counterattack, Perhaps wanting to cut into German supply lines, the tanks behind them, along with the infantry, piled up, regrouped, and then went back north. Still undaunted, as only a 20-year-old could, Stauger went after the retreating Soviet tanks. Ignoring the infantry, he now found before him the enemy tank's relative weak rear, so he started firing. With each shot, an enemy tank burst into flames. Soon, he ran out of armor-piercing shells, so switched to high-explosive rounds. Picking up where he left off, a few more Soviet T-34s were soon ablaze. But then Stauger was truly out of ammunition. Only then did he turn around. The men of the Deutschland Regiment saw all of this and cheered the Tiger's return. Within the first few days, the SS Panzer-led Southern Pincer had penetrated two of the three sublines of the Soviets' first defensive line. The Soviet reserves were brought closer to the front. Yet on July 8th, the SS Panzer Corps had to stop, not because of the enemy, but because they had to let the other Panzer Corps catch up to them. It was the third Panzer Corps that was guarding their right flank. Not unexpectedly, with the lead SS Panzers stopping on the 8th, the next day, the Soviets counterattacked, thinking the Germans had run out of steam. But this was not the case. Once their right flank was protected again, the SS Panzers took off, supported by infantry, artillery, and the Luftwaffe. 
Working in close coordination, not only did the Germans hold back the Soviets, they managed to keep moving forward, albeit at a slower pace. By now, there was no longer any no-man's land. The leading elements of both sides were constantly in proximity and engaging. In reaction to this, as always happens, the battlefield causes a shift in the forces. So on July 9th, Das Reich, which had started out in the center of the SS Panzerline, now found itself on the right flank of the Liebstandarte, who had been on the left, but was advancing more quickly than the other two panzer formations. Hence the Totenkopf was ordered to move to the left flank. Not only was this a challenge during combat, the fact that they accomplished it showed their professionalism, but they soon found themselves trying to keep back the Soviet forces who were being cut off from their comrades and so were trying to push their way further east. Now the SS collectively were heading due north and about to cross the River Passel, just over 100 miles from Kursk, which was the last major river before the smaller town of Obayan and the target city of Kursk itself. But the leading panzers found that they had no bridging equipment. It was still being rushed to the front. The SS chagrined were forced to wait and fight off air attacks. During this wait, the Liebstandarte division was trying to capture Prokhorovka on July 10th, but between the heavy rains and the desperate Soviets, they were stymied, and again the next day. Trying to make the best of a bad situation, Hauser ordered that the Das Reich and Totenkopf assist the Lieb in attacking this town. At least it was accessible. All were in place by July 12th. As Hauser's SS Panzer Corps moved forward, they were engaged by the newly arrived Main Strategic Reserve Force of the 5th Guards Tank Army. In that moment, hundreds of Soviet tanks came over the small hills and, while firing, ran right into the 300 or so SS Panzers. As the Soviets did not have the long range of their German counterparts, the poorly trained tank crews were ordered to get in close. Yet, as the Soviet tanks came into view, the Germans began to fire. But such was the speed and momentum of the T-34s and the other armored vehicles. As they were hit and set ablaze, they continued forward and rammed right into the enemy panzers, which made spotting the Russian tanks further afield harder to see. In the end, the Germans mostly managed to stay calm and continue firing. Given the direction of the approaching T-34s, the Liebstandarte was focused on the most, and though many Russian tanks were quickly taken out, their superior numbers allowed them to get in close and even behind the SS Panzers. Soon, the weaker German tanks in behind the Tigers were being engaged, along with their anti-tank crews. Worse, the T-34s all seemed to have Soviet infantry riding on top, hoping to be carried safely into battle. But the Germans retained their professionalism. They kept firing and quickly figured out that as the Soviet tanks would not stop dashing around, again trying to negate the superior German tanks, the Germans kept on the move as well, hoping to be confused with a fellow Russian tank. 
the fire and smoke that quickly rose made this possible. Hauser came forward when it was safe to and counted up at least 93 T-34s destroyed, all in front of the Liebstandata division. But more than that, hundreds of other tanks and other armored vehicles were destroyed. Amazingly, for all this sound and fury, only some 70 German tanks were lost among all the SS Panzer Corps. Yet these impressive numbers did not alter the larger picture. The southern pincer had come to a stop. To be sure, there were German reserves, but they were being held back and kept fresh for the assuredly Soviet counterattack. The SS Panzer Corps' only hope was that the northern pincer was faring better to keep the pressure on the enemy. But it was not the case. Not only had Field Marshal Modell's forces been checked earlier than the SS Corps, they were being driven back while suffering inexcusable losses. But even worse for the Germans, on July 10th, the Allies had landed troops on Sicily. Hitler could not let Mussolini or his southern front be lost. Someone had to go there and stiffen the Italians' resolve. Hitler had decided that would be the SS. On July 12th, Hitler told his commanders that he would be calling off the offensive, but Manstein wanted to keep going. If his men could just have a day of rest or two, then they would be ready to start up again. But to Hitler's thinking, what was the point, as the northern half was, floundering? So on July 16th, the Germans began to pull back, to go on the defensive. Then the SS were ordered to leave the front to ready themselves for the transfer to Italy. But what made Kursk stand out was that it was a textbook example of what not to do, hitting the enemy at a strong point while using no guile whatsoever. Foolhardy. The SS troops had been well-led and worked almost perfectly as a team, but at some point, numbers tell. And finally, with this first halt of a major German offensive, the initiative now belonged to the more numerous and now experienced Russian armies. Hitler, a politician as well as a military leader, wanted troops that he could trust in Italy, and his fear was proven out. On July 25th, Mussolini was removed from power. However, the German forces currently in Italy were loyal and strong enough to grab power when the Italians announced an armistice with the Allies on September 8th. The SS wasn't needed, but Hitler was paranoid. And not hesitating to take advantage of the quagmire that was Italy, Stalin launched his counteroffensive in mid-July in the southern Ukraine. Liebstandarte was sent to Italy, but the Totenkopf, Das Reich, and Viking, which had been in reserve, were sent against this move. To be sure, given the Soviet numbers, the SS divisions slowed down the Russians, causing impressive casualties, but there was no turning the tide at this point. Not any longer. This fighting went on until the end of August. But even as the Soviets had been slowed, the SS formations found themselves not unlike firemen being called to extinguish a flame here or there. So they were called back north to Belgorod 
Meanwhile, the German forces of the southern pincer had retreated to their starting point near Belgorod. Not that it mattered. The Soviets were now coming at them. Ironically, it would be deja vu all over again. Hitler ordered that Kharkov be held to the last man. But on August 22nd, General Kempf, the man in charge of the city, with the agreement of the SS units, decided to pull back anyways. To stay was to be killed, or worse, encircled. All German forces in the area pulled back to the Dnieper line in western Ukraine. When the Lieb departed, they had left their heavy guns and vehicles behind. Waiting for them in northern Italy was at least enough tigers to make a battalion. And more would come later. Right now, their job was to make sure the Italian army surrendered to Germany, which included the mass killing of partisans in northern and northeast Italy. But the situation in the east being what it was, the Liebstandata was called back there in late October. However, before that day, some of the Lieb participated in liberating Mussolini on September 12th. This was important as it made Himmler even more impressive in Hitler's eyes. And as the Third Reich was crumbling, there were those looking to the day when Hitler would no longer be around, or when Nazi Germany was no more, and someone had to lead the denazified Germany with Soviet forces so close by. <laughs> 